Scott, thank you for your uh, very kind words of welcome. It's a joy to be here. As Scott said, uh, our lives have overlapped now for some time. We have pastored the same church. Uh, we went to the Master's Seminary. We went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School together. Our families are friends, and uh, I love your pastor. I respect him. I count him a uh, faithful minister in the gospel. And I'm thrilled to see what God is doing in the life of your church and in the life of Scott and Patty. And so when the invitation was extended, I didn't spend an awful lot of time thinking about it. So it's a joy to be here, bring greetings from our church in Anaheim Hills. If you're ever down in our neck of the woods, please come and uh, see us. I want to thank Mike and Lori for hosting this uh, event in such a, a wonderful way and good to reconnect with uh, George Jackson Sr. We love Having George at the board, he brings wisdom and perspective, and sometimes he brings a box of cherries, and we like that too. So uh, we're, we're, we, we love him, we love you, and uh, I'm delighted to be here. A few moments ago, uh, uh, Tom came up to me and said, I'll be translating for you tonight. And I said, what do you mean from Irish to English? He says, no, from English to Spanish. So uh, neither we've cleared that up, but I do hope uh, you can tune in uh, to my accent. I was born in the city of Belfast, came to faith when I was 16 through Matthew 24, 44, in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. I'd been running from the claims of Christ, and yet the thought that he could come back before I got to him and his forgiveness and his grace brought me to faith in him. My life changed um, I did some time in engineering in an aerospace company. I was a police officer for six years in Northern Ireland, but God laid his hand on me and called me to the ministry of the Word. And I went to the Irish Baptist College there. During that time, met my beautiful wife, who's a bonnie lass from Scotland. We were married in Scotland, kilt and all, and uh, then we settled in Northern Ireland. And then in 1993, I had the privilege of bringing Dr. MacArthur to Northern Ireland to do a conference with us. A, fri a friendship was struck, and uh, that friendship led to a major change in my life when in 1994 we packed up uh, with our three daughters, five, three, and one, and came here to the United States with the uh, intention of going home. Uh, but God had another plan. We ended up pastoring Placerita Baptist Church at the time, and uh, just God had a a another uh, story he wanted to write in our lives, and we have embraced it. We love it. We have adopted this great country as our home. We're proud United States citizens, and uh, so I'm um, just glad to be here, and uh, uh, if you're down, as I said, in our area, please come and visit our church. We, we do have at the back, if you want to take a look at it a little later, I write a devotional for our radio listeners. We've got 650 stations across the country we're on, and we have put 100 of those devotionals in a book that I think you'll find helpful, Emergency Rations. It's a book to just throw on your coffee table or your bedside cabinet. And you know what? When the struggle's on, uh, when you're going through a little bit of an issue, we've got 14 categories of issues we're addressing. Uh, I think you'll find it helpful. It's kind of each devotional has a story that I think draws you into a biblical text, and then we just let the Word of God speak into your life. I was blessed a little earlier when uh, Mike Jackson told me he had read it, and it was a, a blessing to him. Speaking about Mike, I, I think I've just about forgiven him because he talked me to go into this river a little earlier uh, just to cool down. And that's an understatement. Um, you, you cool down quick. Uh, icicles start forming on your eyelids and all kinds of stuff. But um, it did the trick. And um, 
we now want to turn to God's Word. So if you've got a Bible, you can follow along. If not, listen. I want to speak tonight on the subject, the Good Shepherd, Christ in the Psalms. And I'm excited about just taking God's Word and speaking it into each of your lives. Um, several years ago when I pastored a church in Ohio, uh, one of the deacons came to me and said, you know what, Pastor, I saw a sign in a gun shop in downtown Delito that you might be interested in knowing about. And I said, tell me about it. He said, well, here's what the sign in the gun shop said. Treat your gun like you'd treat an Irishman. Always assume it's loaded. <laughs> well, well, I, I'm loaded, locked and loaded. Uh, and I believe I've got something I think will be beneficial to you. And I know it's a very familiar text, but let's read it together. I'll read it for you. Follow along. Psalm 23 uh, we'll do an introduction tonight on how Christ is to be found everywhere in the Scriptures, and He's found in the Psalms. But I want to really take the balance of my time to encourage you that if you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ, He'll shepherd you through life. And He'll do that in a magnificent way. He has done that for me and my wife and our girls uh, as our story has unfolded. And He will do the same for you. Um, it's... It's a tough assignment to try and shepherd yourself, to be a little God. Life's just too overwhelming for that. You need a shepherd, one who will guide you along the right paths, one who will quieten you when you're troubled, one who will walk through the darkest spots in your life, one who will spread a table for you in the presence of your enemies, one who will cause your cup to overflow Listen to God's word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, the psalmist would remind us from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. And we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the beauty of the surroundings. We thank you that the sun is sinking and there is a coolness in the evening breeze. We thank you you have allowed us to enjoy some fun and food and fellowship. But we're very mindful that Jesus would say to our souls tonight. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And just as you have fed our bodies, we pray now that you would feed our souls and that we would uh, get our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and trying to be our own Savior, trying to atone for our own sins, trying to make a success of ourselves by ourselves and get our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ who is willing to be our shepherd tonight in life 
and in death, for we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Bill Meyer of HBO fame, he's the host of the program Politically Incorrect. I think he speaks for a growing number of Americans when he says this, I don't believe God is a single parent who writes books. I think that snide statement, that attack upon the doctrine of the Bible's inspiration is a reflection not only of where he is, but where a growing number of people are in our culture. They don't believe that the Bible is God's Word. It's just words. It's a sacred text written by man. In fact, they may be able to con- even willing to concede that it's inspirational, maybe even instructive, but it's, it's not inspired. It hasn't been authored by God and it has not been invested with His power or His authority. It's a book. It's not the book. Well, as Christians and as a biblical pastor tonight, I, I, I want to just state publicly, I disagree with that. It's, it's my conviction, and I believe it's the conviction of many of you, that this is the book. This is the Word of God. This is the revelation of the Creator's mind and heart to His creation. The Bible is a different kind of book. In fact, I would state this, that the Bible is the only book you cannot disagree with. For it is God's Word, and you need to hear it, you need to believe it, and you need to submit to it. No, the Bible's a different kind of book. The Bible's the only book you cannot disagree with, and the Bible is the book that you need to read first and you need to read foremost. I do believe God has written a book, and I believe the Bible to be that book, and I believe I have reasons to believe that. I think there is compelling evidence that the Bible is inspired. And I think one of those evidences tonight is the Bible's amazing unity. The Bible's not a patchwork quilt of religious musings. It's a seamless robe centered on the message of God's love for us in Christ. Have have you thought about this recently? The Bible is a library of books, 66 books in all. And from um, the start to the finish, it was compiled over 1,500 years It was written in three different continents, Europe, Asia, North Africa. It was written by 40 different authors, and it was written in three distinct languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And yet there's a remarkable harmony. There's an amazing, how dare I say it, supernatural unity to this book. How do you explain these writers, 40 writers, separated by time, not just 10 years, not just 100 years, in some cases, a 1,000 years, separated by time, separated by culture, separated by language, separated by distance. And yet what they write is coherent, cogent. There's an amazing unity to the Bible. My friend, that's a God thing. How do you explain that? It, only God's involvement explains it. Some years ago, I came across a writer who I thought 
made a phenomenal kind of comparison and analogy to the Bible's inspiration. The fact that it was written over 1,500 years, 40 authors, three continents, three languages, and yet the theme is there for all to see. And here's his comparison. He says, imagine different men making a contribution to a great book. Imagine that when it comes to this great book, contributions were made by William Shakespeare and King James I in the 16th century, by Isaac Newton and John Milton in the 17th century, by Immanuel Kant and George Washington in the 18th century, by William Gladstone, Abraham Lincoln, and C.H. Spurgeon in the 19th century. And, and the product of their contributions is a complete and accurate biography of the 20th century leader, Winston Churchill. And that's what you have in the Bible. You have 40 different authors making contributions across the centuries. But what they write about is the person of Jesus Christ and the fact that God has so loved the world that he has sent his son into the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is a scarlet thread that runs through the whole of the Bible. While the Bible addresses many issues, fundamentally it addresses the issue of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible isn't about how you spice up your marriage, how you learn financial management, how to develop friendships, how to climb the ladder of success. Oh, there's material that addresses those issues, but that's not what the Bible's about. The Bible's about the fact that man, through his sin and disobedience, messed up. And the Bible's about how God has come to clean up the mess. I'm not going to compete with that. So God has come to clean up the mess, and he's done that in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible wants you to know that. The Bible's about the fall, the creation, redemption, consummation. The Bible is a hymn book. It's about him. And that's what your theme has been this summer. That you can go back to the Old Testament and it's about Him, just as the New Testament is about Him. In fact, in John 5, 39, the Lord Jesus Christ says, You search the Scriptures so that you might find eternal life, but the Scriptures speak of Me. In Luke 24, as the disciples try and make sense of Jesus' death and resurrection and the events of Jerusalem, Jesus meets them on the other side of his resurrection. And he says, you know what? Let's look at Moses and the law. Let's look at the prophets. Let's look at the Psalms because they speak about me and what went on this weekend in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 says what? Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And on the third day, he rose again according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are about Jesus' death and resurrection. The fact that he took our place on Calvary's cross and bore the judgment of God that was ours and became our substitute and our Savior. That's why Paul said to Timothy, didn't he, in 2 Timothy 3 verse 15, that from a child you have known the Scriptures which are able to make you wise on the salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, the Bible is a single story. 
of God's love for fallen mankind, this rebellious planet. And God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And that's the message we want to get across to you. It's a message that's pronounced in the Old Testament, but it's or New Testament, but it's found in the Old Testament. And that's why I want to take you tonight to um, Psalm 23. Because Christ is found in the Psalms. He told his disciples in Luke 24, let's look at Moses and the law, let's listen to the prophets, and let's read the Psalms. Jesus loved the Psalms. As a Jewish boy, he would have grown up learning the Psalms in the synagogue when his parents made that pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. They would have sung the Psalms of Ascent. No doubt throughout his life, he turned to the Psalms. They informed his walk with God. They, they um, fueled his prayer life and worship of God. In fact, he dies on the cross with the Psalms upon his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Psalm 31. Jesus loved the Psalms. And Jesus is to be found in the Psalms. And I can't think of a more beautiful uh, passage in the Old Testament to, to show you, or at least in the book of Psalms, how Christ is found in the Old Testament. He is the Savior who has been promised. Because when you go to the New Testament, Jesus is described in John 10 as the Good Shepherd. In Hebrews 13 as the Great Shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5 as the chief shepherd. He's the good shepherd that dies for the sheep. He's the great shepherd who lives and cares for the sheep. And he's the chief shepherd who's going to come and reward his followers with glory. Adrian Rogers said that small signs of inspiration are big signs of inspiration. How beautiful is it? And in Psalm 22 we read about the death of the coming Messiah. In Psalm 23, we read about the good shepherd who takes care of his sheep. In Psalm 24, we read about the king of glory and how um, the earth is his and the fullness thereof. Psalm 22, the good shepherd who dies for the sheep. Psalm 23, the great shepherd who lives for the sheep. Psalm, or 1 Peter 5 the, 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 the chief shepherd who comes for the sheep. It's what the old preachers called the cross, the crook, and the crown. Psalm 22 deals with our past as Jesus dies for our sin. Psalm 23 deals with our present as he walks with us through the valleys of life. Psalm 24 deals with our future as the king of glory comes back to reward his people. How beautiful. And so what I want to do for the balance of my time, I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at Psalm 23 and verse 1. I want to encourage you to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the good, the great, and the chief shepherd. I don't know what you're facing, what trials you're going through, what, what lies around the next bend on the road for you. But you know what Psalm 23 promises you? It promises you what every human heart desires. People want security. 
and people want sufficiency. And Psalm 23 promises that to us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's sufficiency. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's security. And I hope tonight that uh, you'll think about where you're at in relationship to God and your relationship to His Son, Jesus Christ, because Christ wants to offer you tonight sufficiency and security. He wants to forgive your past. He wants to control your present. He wants to dictate your future, and it's all wonderful. And those of us that are believers tonight want you to know that that you can get up every day through faith in Him and be able to look life square in the face and say, I shall not want and I will not fear. And I'll tell you why, because of the shepherd. If we look at verse 1 of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's several things I want you to see. I want us to look at the person of the shepherd, then we're going to look at the provision of the shepherd, and then we're going to look at the possession of the shepherd. Let's, let's jump right in. Let's look at the person of the shepherd. I want you to notice that David's confidence is rooted in the nature, character, and person of the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The grammar here in the Hebrew text puts the emphasis on Lord, not shepherd. The emphasis is on who the shepherd is. And that's important. Because when you understand who this shepherd is, you shall not want. When you understand who this shepherd is, you shall not fear. In fact, you could read the Hebrew like this. My shepherd being Yahweh, I shall not want. You'll see in your English Bibles that the word Lord is capitalized. This is the um, personal name of God. It's found 7,000 times in the Bible. It's the covenant name of God. It's the word Yahweh or Jehovah. It speaks of his nature and character. It was rarely pronounced. It was often substituted by Adonai or Elohim. It was only pronounced once in Israel, once a year by the high priest behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies. When a scribe wrote it, he broke the pen and never used it again. This is God's high and holy name. And I'll tell you what it means. At the heart of it is a verb to be. In fact, this word, the Lord, is related to God's revelation of himself in, in, in the story of Moses in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6. God says to Moses, what? Tell them that I am, that I am sent you. That's our word. That's our name. Tell them the Lord, the I am has sent you. Because this name carries the idea of God's inescapable, eternal, inexhaustible nature. It carries the idea of the fact that God has always been. Remember, it's related to the verb to be. God has always been. I like what the old preacher said. It wasn't great grammar, but it was great theology. The Lord has always been is and always will be is. That's who David's shepherd was, the Lord. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. And this is a wonderful thing, and we want to kind of 
drill down into it for a few moments because there's two things about God that this communicates. Number one, his timelessness, and number two, his timeliness. He's the one who's always existed. That's his timelessness. And because he's timeless, he's timely. He's a never-present help in time of trouble. Let's just unpack that for a few moments. He's the Lord, the one who always was, always is, always will be. He'll always be what he was. He always is what he will be. God exists because God exists. He always has and he always will. God is self-sufficient, self-existent. There's nothing outside of God that defines him. He has existed sufficiently, eternally, and perfectly within the circumference of his own being. God doesn't change because he's immutable, and God cannot improve because he's perfect. If I might put it like this, there is no itch in the character of God that needs scratching. God doesn't improve. God doesn't become something other than he's always been. There's nothing to be added to God. He always has been what he is. And what he is, he'll always be. That's the word that David's using. He says, the eternal, all-sufficient, perfect, timeless God is my shepherd. Parenthesis, and what a wonderful thing. What a, what a glorious thing. By the way, to illustrate this, remember how God reveals himself to Moses when he says, I am that I am? What does he speak out of? He speaks out of a burning bush. What's interesting about the bush? It burns, but it doesn't consume itself. It's an inexhaustible bush. It's an inequenchable flame. And that's the God who's speaking, who doesn't grow old with the passing of the years, whose strength and power is not diminished in all his governing of the universe, in all his creation. He is a glorious being. We're dependent upon him, but he's not dependent upon us. That's why I love what um, R.C. Sproul says. He says this, God doesn't need me to be me for him to be him. But I need him to be him for me to be me. See, God exists because God exists. You and I exist because God exists. And he breathed life into our life. And he allotted us a span on earth. And then him we move and we have our being. I need him to be him for me to be me, but he doesn't need me to be me for him to be him. And if that's who he is, I think he can take care of you, your family, your business, your sickness, your days on earth. He's able, he's willing, and he's gloriously sufficient. That's why, by the way, it's logical, isn't it? The Lord, the one who has always existed in perfection and glory, who knows no weakness, has no blind spots, there's nothing in his character that needs itching. If he's my shepherd, then you've got to conclude, I shall not want. 
Because if there's no want in God, if there's nothing lacking in God, if He created all of us and all of this with His breath, well, can't He take care of you? Can't He shepherd you and your flock? Oh, He can and He will. And I hope you'll move over and let Him do that tonight. Because He's not only timeless, He's timely. Because I think I'm right. Hopefully you'll agree. Think about this. If God exists always in a state of fullness and perfection, then when you and I are at a point of need, can God supply the need? Because remember, nothing diminishes Him. Nothing makes Him weak. He doesn't need refilled or refueled. And so, just as He is all that He ever needs to be for Himself forever, He can be what we need Him to be for us within time. That's why I love what Adrian Rogers says in a wonderful little book on Psalm 23. Let me quote him. You'll like this. Here's what he says. Did you notice that the title God chose to describe Himself to Moses is an incomplete sentence? Right? Remember what God, what God said to Moses? Tell them that I am sent you. That's an incomplete sentence. Adrian Rogers goes on. Most people would finish that sentence, I am love, I am light, or I am something. But not our Lord. He purposefully did not complete the sentence, I am, because He ever exists. He is always God. He is. Are you hungry? He is the bread. Are you in the dark? He is the light. Are you searching? He is the truth. Are you lost? He is the way. Are you in need? He is the shepherd. Whatever you need Him to be tonight, He can be that. You need sin forgiven? He'll be your Redeemer. You need wisdom, he'll be your guide. You need strength for your weakness, he'll be your supply. He's an incomplete sentence. Every day you get up, whatever your needs are, he says, I am whatever you need me to be. That's a wonderful thought. That brings peace to your heart. That brings confidence to your actions. That's why the psalmist says, the Lord is my refuge and my strength an ever-present help. Because, you see, He ever lives as God, sufficient and glorious and full. You know, some years ago, when I pastored a church in Ohio, I had a wonderful man in the church whose brother was uh, Frank Hartwig, a former ABWE missionary, and after preaching on this text, this guy sent me a little poem that his brother had written. Here's what the poem said. God is. I'm his. He's mine. All is fine. You know what? That, that could do you for the rest of your days. God is. Always has been is. Always will be is. God is. I'm his. He's mine. All is fine. That's why, by the way, Joseph Parker, the contemporary of C.H. Spurgeon, preached the passage I'm preaching, preached the verse I'm preaching, and um, he, he, he started to read Psalm 23, 
He read Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he stopped. And he was caught up with that thought. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He stopped, he closed his Bible, and he said this. That is enough. It is That's the person of the shepherd. Let's go on for a few moments and look at the provision of the shepherd. The the provision of the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You see, the provision is rooted in the bigness of the shepherd. If that's who the Lord is, and if he's my shepherd, then I can conclude that there's nothing too difficult for him. And I shall not want. That's why D.L. Moody famously said, with God make no small plans. Because of the Lord your shepherd you shall not want. That's logical. Now, Now let me clarify something because the Hebrew word here for want is exactly that. It's a word that speaks about a need or a want, not a desire. So we can't twist this psalm to read, the Lord is my shepherd, he'll meet all my desires. No, that's not what the text says. That's something a health and wealth preacher might say, but that's not what the text says. The text says, the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want for that which is necessary for life and godliness, that which is necessary to live your life to God's glory. That's the provision being promised. Because what we see as a need, what we think we need, and what is the real need are all different things. And some of that we have to leave with God. Now, biblical scholars would argue that Deuteronomy 2 verse 7 is the backdrop to this text. Because when you go there, there's a similar construction in the Hebrew. And here Moses is telling us the story of the wilderness wanderings of God's people and how God brought them through. Here's what Deuteronomy 2 verse 7 says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through the great wilderness these 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you and you have lacked nothing. Many believe David's got that in mind. The God who shepherded Israel for 40 years through the wilderness is going to take care of him. And don't forget, if our calculations are right, when Israel left Egypt, they left with 600,000 men. If we add some ladies and children into that, we estimate about 2 million. 2 million people. God took care of them for 40 years. In fact, um, the quartermaster of the American army one day looked at that tax and said, wow, I wonder what that all amounts to. And he worked out that that would include 1,500 tons of food a day that would need um, two trains a mile long to get it there. Amazing. That's what God did for Israel. Now David is king on Israel and he goes back into their history and he says, you know what? God has shepherded his people magnificently and the God who has taken care of the world and the God who has taken care of our nation will take care of me. And if you read Psalm 23, that's, that's what Psalm 23 is about. 
In fact, G. Campbell Morgan, the great English expositor, said about verse 1, when this is said, all is said. Because the rest of Psalm 23 is simply an explanation of the fact that the Lord your shepherd you shall not want. You shall not want for green pastures when you're weary. You shall not want for still waters when you're anxious. You shall not want for restoration when you're sinful. You shall not want for guidance when you're perplexed. You shall not want for comfort when you're fearful. You shall not want for a feast when you're in the presence of your enemies. You shall not want for an anointing when you're hurt. And you shall not want for a house in eternity when you die. And you know what? My family has lived this out. And I hope your family is living it out. Scott alluded to the fact that in 1994, we came to the United States from Northern Ireland. Our girls were five, three, and one. We sold everything we had, put it into boxes, shipped it to Los Angeles port, got off that plane where it's met by Dr. MacArthur and some good folks from Grace Community. They welcomed us. We had jumped the pond. We were starting to write a chapter that was so unknown to us. But a text like this had encouraged us. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. I could never have dreamed in a month of Sundays that someday I would be sitting at the board table with Dr. MacArthur, with Scott, with George Jackson and a host of good men. I couldn't have dreamed that. I was just thinking about how do we get through the first semester at the Master's Seminary? How do I stay on the right side or the wrong side of the road without killing myself? That's the kind of stuff that occupied us. But you know what? The Lord's our shepherd. In fact, at that time, before we came here, we were reading the message by Eugene Peterson, and we were reading Matthew 6. And he translates that verse in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, don't worry. The birds of the air don't worry. Don't you worry. Your heavenly Father will take care of you. He beautifully translates that as I read it to my family that night, that the birds are careless in the care of God. Oh, that's my testimony. I could bring my wife up, my three daughters. That's our testimony. I'm not saying we haven't worried and we haven't been anxious. We're human. But our testimony is looking back now on many, many years since 1994. We can be careless in the care of God because we shall not want. Got a question. And you probably have it as you're listening. Pastor, this all sounds good. But you know what? I've prayed Psalm 23. And there have been times in my life where I believe I have needed something that God hasn't delivered. I'm not sure about your confidence in this text because I've gone to the shepherd, I've gone to the Lord, and I've still needed something. How do you explain that? that? That's a fair question, and a good pastor is going to think that out, and I've sought to do that. It's a sermon in itself. I'm going to compress it to five minutes and then wrap up here shortly with a final thought. But what if you lack? What tonight if you're lacking something that you've asked God for, and you believe perhaps that what you're asking for fits well within His will? So how do you explain the lack of provision? Got several things quickly. Number one, you may not have worked hard enough yourself. You may not have exhausted all the possibilities in your life to answer your own prayer. Prayer is not a substitute for endeavor. Trusting God is not an excuse for you not doing your part. 
That's why the Bible says, go look at the ant. They don't have to be commanded. They gather food in the summer and they work together for the winter. So go look at the ant. And the question might be to you and me tonight, you know what, have we exhausted our ingenuity? Have we exhausted our industry within the providence of God to perhaps get to a better place? Think about that. Just because you've asked God to provide, God might be whispering from the balconies of heaven, be an answer to your own prayer. There's something more you've still got to do. I love the story John MacArthur tells when he was a little boy watching television. There was a boxing game on and he turned to his father because one of the boxers had kind of danced out into the middle of the ring and crossed himself before the ringing of the bell and the start of the game or the fight. And he turned to his father, he says, Dad, what does that mean? He's saying, Dad, what, what does it mean when he crosses himself? And, and Jack MacArthur said to young Johnny, it means nothing if he can't box. Good point. That's my point. Here's another thought. Have you prayed enough? Have you prayed enough? Because James says what? In James 4. You have not because you ask not. You say, well, pastor, I have asked. Good. But, but I think the Lord said, keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking. It's not that the Lord can't answer your prayer. Maybe God wants to do something in your life before he answers the prayer. Maybe he wants to stretch your faith. Maybe he wants to deepen your endurance. So just because you don't have what you've asked for doesn't mean that God has failed. Number one, you may not have exhausted the possibilities to answer your own prayer. Number two, you may not have prayed enough. Number three, God may be up to something greater and he wants you to wait. Some years ago, I read a sermon by George B. Duncan who taught at the Tron Presbyterian Church in Glasgow. When my wife and I were dating, we used to sneak in there when Eric Alexander and Sinclair Ferguson pastored that church. George B. Duncan had a sermon on John 11 and he brought this thought out. Remember when... You know, Lazarus is sick, and, and, and Mary and Martha send for Jesus. Their brother's sick. They want Jesus to come and do something about it, and Jesus delays. You know what? He, he just doesn't get there in time, and Lazarus dies, and when Jesus gets there, the sister says, Lord, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And then the Lord raises him from the dead. And George B. Duncan says, have you ever thought about this? that sometimes God waits and he has you and me waiting because he's up to something greater. Because if Jesus had got there on time, he would have healed a sick man, but he got late so that he could raise a dead man for the greater glory of God. This sickness is not on the death, but for the glory of God. Here's the last thought. Maybe we have misunderstood our need and what we think is good for us, God doesn't think is good for us. I like Psalm 84, verse um, 11. No good thing will he withhold to those that walk uprightly. Now, if you and I are lacking, it could be because we're not walking uprightly. Or that the thing we're asking for that we think is good is not good or it's good for someone else, but God says it's not good for you, or it's good for a later time, but not now. God doesn't withhold good 
ever from us and all things work together for good. I'm reminded of a sign in a window in a general store in a small town that once read this, if we don't have it, you don't need it. And I wonder if sometimes God would say that to you and me. If I don't give it, you don't need it. Because I withhold no good thing. And if I'm withholding it, it's for your good. And it's for a greater good. Okay, a couple of minutes here and we'll wrap up. Let's get to the last thought. You still with me? All right, that pizza's not lying too heavily on you. What about the possession of the shepherd? This is a very simple thought, but it's a beautiful thought. Let's go back to our verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We've seen the person, the Lord, who's our shepherd. We've seen the provision, we shall not want. But I want you to notice the possession. The Lord is my shepherd. God was not an abstraction to David. God was not a theological formula to David. God was personal, knowable in David's life. There's nothing cold or distant about David's language about God. He writes in the third person. He he writes in the second person. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said that true religion is a matter of personal pronouns. He's right. You could say tonight the Lord is the shepherd. And that would be theologically correct. But that won't save your life. And it won't save your soul. And it won't comfort your heart. You need to be able to say the Lord is my shepherd. I've come to know him. I've come to trust him through his son. True religion is a matter of personal pronouns. My mother was saved in a Pentecostal church on a Wednesday night prayer meeting and the thing that triggered her conversion was listening to Christians pray. And she said, if it can be that personal, if you can know God that intimately and you can call him your father and you can know him as your friend, I want that. She had grown up in cold religiosity, bells and smells in beautiful churches. But that was missing. She met people intoxicated by God who knew him, who dared to speak to the Creator as a father and children, as a shepherd and sheep. Folks, tonight, or tomorrow, read Psalm 23 and, and, and circle the personal pronouns. In Psalm 23, there are 57 Hebrew words, 118 words in the English text. There are 28 personal pronouns. That's 25% of the psalm is written in a personal pronoun. Talk about Intimacy. Talk about knowing God at an up-close-and-personal way because, you see, sheep to shepherds were not wild animals. 
They were bought, they were owned, they were loved, they were cared for, they were known by name. To this day, those of us that have visited Israel, we've seen it. Where you can watch an eastern shepherd where his sheep have mingled with other sheep around the well, all he has to do is call out their name or speak with his voice and his sheep will follow him. Sheep know the shepherd and they're loved by the shepherd. Why is Psalm 23 so universally loved? Because it's so individual. The Lord is my shepherd. As we close tonight, I want you to know God can be known And God has made himself known in the creation, in your conscience, and supremely through Christ his Son. And God wants to know you and wants you to know him. And God wants to know all about you. Job said, he knows the way that I take. The psalmist said, he knows my Make up and that I am weak. Jesus said, the Father knows the things you have need of before you ask. God is interested in your life. God wants you to know him and be known by him. Just a couple of days ago, a friend from Northern Ireland sent me a, 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 an email with a, an attachment and he said it had been a blessing to him, and so I clicked on, and it was, a, it was a portion of a sermon by Dr. John MacArthur many, many years ago. You could tell by the quality of the recording and, and John's voice. It just seemed younger. And as I listened, John told a story about a, an actor a man who worked in the theater who had come to a civic luncheon and uh, after he had done some performances where his diction was perfect, his elocution, wonderful, uh, he opened it up for some questions and an old pastor, long in the tooth and marked by many, many years, he said, you know what, w would you do me a favor? I'd love you to um, repeat Psalm 23. I'd love to hear that in your your accent and in your voice. And, and the man said, you know what? I, I'd be willing to do that, but only on the provision that after I've said it, you say it. And so the actor did it. I mean, it was like Elizabethan English. It was perfect pitch. And, and, and people sat in silence and listened in rapt attention. And after he had finished, there was a round of applause and the old man stood up and with a crackling voice where the years had taken its toll, he repeated the psalm. It was nothing like what the actor had done. And yet by the end of it, there was a holy hush and there were tears that were beginning to stream down people's cheeks. And the actor had caught the moment and he stood up and he said this. He said, folks, do you want to know the difference between him and me, between me and him? I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. And as I close tonight, that's my parting challenge. Uh, you probably know the psalm. You probably read it and heard it a hundred times. In fact, 
We could probably have each of us stand up and recite it. But the question is, do you know the shepherd? The Christ who is in all of the scriptures, the Christ who is in the Psalms, the Christ who is the good shepherd who died for the sheep, the great shepherd who lives for the sheep, the chief shepherd is coming back for the sheep. True religion is a matter of personal pronouns. If you'd like to put your faith in Christ tonight and come to know him and let him shepherd you in life and in death, please talk to one of us. Talk to myself. Talk to Mike. Talk to Pastor Scott. Talk to someone you're with. Don't let this evening go by. We're passing up the greatest offer you'll be ever offered in life. That you can know the one who created life and who purchased eternal life for you in the death of his son. You know the psalm. But tonight, come to know the shepherd and join us on this joyful journey. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do thank you for this psalm. We thank you that it has um, stirred the souls of a soldier on the battlefield. It has brought comfort to the dying. It has been on the minds and the heart of your martyrs across church history. We thank you tonight. You are the shepherd. And you're a wonderful shepherd. You're, you're a, 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 a full and forever shepherd. And when we know who you are and what you're capable of, no wonder we can live in the confidence we shall not want for that which is absolutely necessary. Oh God, we thank you for your provision. We, we stand tonight realizing that goodness and mercy has followed us to this very hour. We thank you we haven't wanted. We thank you you've forgiven our sins. We thank you you've healed our diseases. We thank you you've redeemed our life from destruction and crowned our life with loving kindness. Thank you tonight we can claim you as our Father and as our Shepherd. We know you and we're amazed that you know us. And we thank you that it won't happen on that final day when you will say to some, depart from me because I never knew you. We thank you we know you and we'll know you forever. I pray tonight that there may be someone here who will come to know the shepherd of the psalm and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen.